Agents Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Follow a Boss. Follow a Boss is the real estate CRM that turns every agent into a top performer. Follow a Boss is packed with features, but it's intuitive and easy to use. So agents love working with it and it integrates with everything. Use multiple lead sources. Guess what? Follow a Boss keeps them all organized. Want to try new marketing channels? Switch website providers? Plug them right into Follow a Boss. Visit followupboss.com forward slash lab code to see how Follow a Boss helps you close more deals. That's followupboss.com forward slash lab code. All right. So this is an interesting one today because, and here's why, just hear me out here, audience. And that is because this isn't your typical, let me tell you how to get a real estate deal. Let me tell you how to nurture leads. Let me tell you how to do all the various things that we talk about all the time on this podcast. And it was funny because we were talking off the air here. And I even mentioned to our guest today that, you know, tell me how we're going to bring value today. Because when I read his one sheeter, I was fascinated. And I'm fascinated because he's young, 27. Uh, He has been at this since the ripe old age of 13. And he has now since grown his business and his asset worth to over $100 million. And a lot of it, or maybe all of it, is through real estate endeavors, but not necessarily what we always talk about on this show. So I thought this would be a fun story. This is going to be a fun conversation because it's a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit more of a mindset shift uh, because we're going to talk about focus. We're going to talk about some of the things that he's done to implement, again, at the ripe old age of 27. And I know some of us right now are probably going to be cursing him, uh, but it's purely out of en- uh, envy, Mr. Andrew Abernathy. Welcome to the show. And I'm going to be the one get razzing you because I'm 44 and I wish I had that focus that you have and the wealth that you had at that age. Welcome well, to the I show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm excited. So why don't you, obviously, let's just assume our audience probably has no idea who the hell you are. And I just gave them a little bit of teaser about what you've built but how did you build it? Tell us about your story. Where did you come from and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Lansford, North Dakota. It's about 15 miles from the Canadian border, dead center, North Dakota. Uh, six, five siblings, there's six of us, family farm. And we all worked on the farm, got paid you know, $5 an hour uh, starting at 10. And by 14, I saved up $6,000, but I spent 2000 on it, uh, on a go-kart, red go-kart. I mean, can you blame me? <laughs> And then I had the 4,000 left and it just so happened to be March 23rd, my birthday in 09, which was only a few days from the bottom of the market. I was hearing all this market stuff and I was interested because I was interested in it since I was 10. I just read about it. So I threw my 4,000 in for 99 cents, Bank America, $3. And it, it was dumb luck, right? Like I was 14. I, I'm not sitting here saying I knew what I was doing, but it was dumb luck. And 4,000 turned it to 80,000 by 10th grade in high school. Um, I was started a farm operation parallel, custom combining, did an apparel company. And then I went and put the 80000 I wanted to buy some apartments in Bismarck, North Dakota. And this was right before the oil boom hit. So again, another dumb luck opportunity. Um, I went to my buddy's dad. I'm like, hey, Vance, I got 80 grand, no balance sheet. I'm in 10th grade in high school. I need $1.25 million. And he's like, Andrew, that's, that's awesome. But you're going to need some investors. You're going to need another 300000 on a balance sheet. I'm like, oh, okay. So Warren Buffett, he was a, I was a fan of his, 
And I printed off his 1956 operating agreement for his first investment investors. His, uh, and I whited the names out and I raised 300,000 from two local farmers. And I just said, hey, if I fail, you guys can have my 80 grand and they have a property. So and I'm, I'll work for free too. Just try to build a track record. So went back to Vance the next day, got the money, got the loan, bought them, oil boom hit. And I sold them before I graduated high school for 2 million to the city of Bismarck. We netted about a million. And um, at the same time, I was farming, custom combining, and then I went to college in Fargo. And I'm wait, like, wait, gosh, I just want to raise more. Yeah. Give me the give me the years here. So you were 10th grade. In when 2010. You did this. What's that? In 2010, I was in 10th grade. Okay. And yep. then you went through the process of, of getting, acquiring the money, which I was going to mention Warren Buffett when you were talking about you reading about stocks. I, I've done plenty of Warren Buffett reading as well, but it was all as an adult. And so, okay, so you, you did that. And then, and then how long did it take from the 10th grade, 2010, to then when you sold that property and netted a million bucks? It was about 16 months. I mean, the oil boom hit pretty hard. You know, again, this is all very fortunate. It's not normal. It is very fortunate. The oil boom, bock, bock. And then we sold it. And uh, 12 months later, the, the oil market crashed. So again, it was pretty lucky. The city actually bought it and tore it down. They just needed more room for the school. We were right by a high school. And Bismarck, three hours away from where I was going to high school at the time. Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> and, uh, sorry, sorry, carry on. No, you're good. These, please interrupt anytime. I, I'm North Dakota fast, so I tr I'll try to talk slow. So then I went and I'm in college. And I'm like, you know, I like this. I kind of want to raise some more money and do this because I was working on the farm. My brother and I were running that. And so I went and started knocking on doors in rural North Dakota. And with that little track record and a million dollars in a checking account, because when I went back to these guys and said, hey, here's your money back, they said, Andrew, you keep it and charge us this time. So I went and spent 12 grand on a PPM and got a legit, you know, 220 agreement and all that. So I started knocking on doors and I raised $10 million in 11 months because farming was really good and nobody targeted the rural North Dakota. So I was, you know, getting one to 200,000 a door. And then I went, we started acquiring operating companies and we um, then went and I basically fast forward to 27, we raised about a hundred million cash equity wise. And then we've, uh, and we've worked with banks on the rest. So. Wow. I want to let you dive in. Cause there's a lot, I jumped there. I just, there's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> First question is what, what did knocking on doors mean? Just jumping in my $1,000 Lumina and driving around the farmyards and, and then, and we knew each other. We're all farmers, you know, and it's like, Hey, you know, I'm looking to, to do some more investing. I've done all right in the past. You know, if you got one to 200,000, you'd like to throw with me, let's be partners. So I just basically went and got 80 people to throw in money and they all own a portion of that holding company. And then that holding company just started buying and investing and evolving. That's fascinating. And how did you set that up on the back end? Like what was the, the, legal, the legal way that you went about setting up the holding company and whatnot? Is there anything, anything that would be valuable to, to someone to, to know so they would know how to do the same? Yeah, it's a good question. So when I started, I, I had no idea what I was doing, right? Somebody's like, hey, you got to get a PPM. I'm like, what the heck is a PPM? So private placement memorandum, it's like an 80 page document. Most of it's legal jargon, but needed. The biggest thing you have to figure out is, you know, what are you going to charge? Because if you charge a lot, you might have not many people interested, charge too little, you're leaving money on the table. So I went in there uneducated and I did like a, I didn't even know 50% of the profits and nobody would sign it. I'm like, yeah, that, that was pretty dumb. So then I went back and I did a 220. So every year I get 2% of what I raise as a salary. 
And then if I do well, I get 20% of, of the profits above a 5% hard hurdle. So the first 5% return is theirs. And then I get 20% above. But the great thing is I owned, you know, 20% of the fund because I put all my profits into it. So I was a shareholder and also a manager. So it worked out quite well. Who guided you on all of this? A lot of Google. <laughs> I watched some Harvard classes on YouTube once. I mean, oh my goodness. I cold called, I, I took a list of the 10 richest people in North Dakota and called every one of them. And most didn't answer back, but uh, a couple did. That was good. Interesting. That's, that's interesting. I mean, and that's, you know what, the way I would describe that is, and, and I tell, I've actually run a pretty big mortgage business and I tell loan officers that some, sometimes I'm like, it, you just got to ask and yeah. you just, you just continue to ask. The worst thing that's going to happen is people are going to tell you no, but most, some of the most successful people are just the ones who are the squeakiest wheel. That's it. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's, a, there's a strategy to that and you, you can't be an asshole and you can't be pushy and, you know, you can't be un, un, ungrateful, but that's it, man. It's just ask. And a lot of times that's, that's a powerful lesson in and of itself for most people. Okay. No, I so like that. you said it right. It, well, so now you, you are fast. So fast forward. So where, where are we in the, in the timeline now at this point where you've raised all this money? Like what happened next? Once, yeah, once you built sure. that nest egg. So I had some success and I had some failures. I mean, we went and bought an equipment dealership out in Great Falls, um, a success. We tripled it in size. I found a great guy to put into place. It was around since 1947. Got a killer seller financing terms. Um, we went and bought an insurance company in Alabama that was publicly traded, which we became the largest shareholders in. And I asked to be on the board and we had to go and change the, we had to go in and get an exemption from the insurance state commissioner because you have to be 30 years or older to be on a public company board. So I had to get approval because I was 23 at the time. And that was a, that was a success. We went and bought um, a hell into a helicopter company, public asset play was all great. Um, went bankrupt. There was some management illegal stuff. Doesn't matter. It was my fault. We lost 3 million on that one. So to date, that's my biggest and only loss so far, but it really hurt at the time of that loss. That was, that was 15% of the portfolio at that time. You know, that was a few years ago. Wow. So that, was, that was tough, but I learned a lot. And that's kind of what pushed me into the focus realm. So talk about that. So talk about, because you mentioned that off air was, you know, where your coach is. So talk a little bit about what had le kind of led you down the path. Because listen, anybody who is going to find high levels of success are going to fail many times miserably, many times often along the way. And I think that's also why most humans never find real success because their fear of failure is just way too great. Right. Or they fail once. Right. You're like, F that never again. I'm out I'm going back to that nine to five job. Right. And we're talking to real estate agents here. You know, you, you, yep. you, you got into this business. Why? Most of them were because of the just simplistic, simplistic reasons like, Hey, I can control my schedule. Sky is the limit. I can make this money. Right. I can, I can do the things that I want to do. It's going to afford me a lifestyle. And, and, you know, most of them never find that success. And this is a lot of the reason why. So talk about what kind of led you down that path. Cause I think this will resonate with people. So yeah. was it that that point at that failure point that you kind of had a, a, a light bulb moment or just tell, tell us the story. Yeah, that was, I mean, when I lost that big of an investment, 15% of the portfolio and hadn't lost anything before. And, and I wasn't arrogant before that. I just, things were working, but still it just, it was the first loss. So it hit really hard. And fat, remember before when I mentioned, I made a list and I called the wealthiest people in North Dakota, hoping I'd get some calls back. 
Well, odds, odds have it, five years before that, I started a relationship with Gary Theraldson, and he is the wealthiest person in North Dakota, worth a couple billion dollars now. And he actually called me back. He was the only one. And we built a relationship over the, over the five years prior to that. And I went to him after that, and I said, Gary, that really hurt. And he said, Andrew, you're good at a lot of things, but you're not really great at anything. And that hurt in a good way, but I needed to hear it. So that's when I went and he, and he, uh, there's something else he said. And I like, he said, you know, Andrew, everybody's out there searching in the world for, for the idea, right? Like they're waiting for the weather to be perfect. Or maybe when I'm 40, the idea will find me. I'll, you know, you hear it all the time, right? There isn't the idea. There's simply an idea, make a list, pick one and go make it one, make it the, make it the idea. And so what I did was I printed it off. I wanted to be in real estate. My family has been in farmland since early 1900s, only farmland. And all the successes prior to this were in real estate properties. That ho- that, that apartment I mentioned, I had um, a HUD property and some commercial in Fargo, North Dakota, that went really well as well. And so I went and made a list of asset classes in real estate. And I was down between self-storage and assisted living. And uh, since I'm a simple farm boy, assisted living seemed too complex. So storage it is, one toilet per building, one employee per 15 million in assets. And it's just a bunch of stuff. So that's what I picked. Okay. So let me ask you a question about that because let's, let's just, let's, let's rewind the clock and say, I was one of the richest guys in North Dakota, which is laughable, but let's just say laughable for two reasons. One, I wouldn't live there. And two, I would never be the richest. Um, but let's just say you said, Hey, Jeff, you know, what do you think assisted living or self-storage and I'd be like, I think that's a pretty easy decision based upon where the future is going. Baby boomers, uh, like yep. like dementia and Alzheimer's are, are like becoming an epidemic because, and the, there's no cure. They can't figure it out. It's the brain. This is only going to continue to get worse. And we have no idea why it, this is going to be a booming industry. And it is a booming is. industry. So uh, my question to you would be, are you, are you just afraid of the details or the little bit maybe added risk? So you're taking the easy street. That mm-hmm. would be my thinking. Tell me why I may be wrong. Good question. So Gary likes to say he likes to stack his deck, right? There's a lot of things you can do in the world in investing. Some investing is gambling and some investing is investing. And he likes to stick as close to the investing side as possible. So he would print hotels. That was, that's what he did. He started out in the 80s by himself. He bought a hotel, then started building them. And he would, and he would just did hotels. And he ended up building 250 hotels by 2006 on his own that he owned and kept and sold them to Goldman Sachs for $2 billion back in 06. And then he went and did it again. He just built another 4 billion in hotels the last five years. So hotels was his thing. And so what he told me was, if you go and do something simple like storage, you can print them. And you can put them in dense, high populated areas where people are living in less and storing. And these are big storage. They're, they're big. They look like hotels. They're three stories. They're beautiful. They're extra space storage. That's who we use. They, they brand them and public storage. And we build them for 13 million each, hundred thousand square feet, one person and extra space storage you, actually manages. What do you mean? Us. One person. So we have one full-time employee per, per building. Oh, got it. Yep. So for, in that asset, we build them for 13. They're worth about 21 when stabilized. And we still have that one, one and a half person per building. Is and that, is that I, dependent upon the land that it sits on? Nope. 
No, I mean, it depends on the size of the building, but all of our buildings are about 100,000 square feet gross, 72,000 net rentable. But doesn't the value of the property also have- Oh, I see what you're saying. It mostly goes on cash flow, and all of ours usually fall in that 850 NOI to a million two. So yeah, it does. It's in that 20, 25, yes. So, but it's within the range. You know, we just kind of average it out. Got it. And so we started printing them, but then Gary also said you should own the process. So we own the construction company. We own a garage door dealership because each one is 800 doors, 900. We own the equipment dealership, which I told you earlier, we bought in Great Falls, Montana. And then we're also going to look to add some other vertical integration pieces once we get up to one a month. So right now we're doing three to four a year. And by 2025, we'll be up to about one a month. We have the funding for it. We're just trying to get the people in the, in the lot zoning in place. So it just takes time to ramp up. Interesting. How do you find the locations? Yeah, so we have a crew that most of them are in North Dakota. We even have some interns. So they'll literally work with, we have a broker in each state or in city that helps us find dirt. Commercial. And then we'll commercial have these guys broker. located in Fargo and they'll go through them. And then they'll work with the city, states, and counties. So we have a criteria. And Gary taught us this too. It's simple. It's five steps. We need 100,000 population in a three-mile radius. We need 100,000 household income in a three-mile radius and or more on all these. We need to be on and visible from a main thoroughfare with 70,000 vehicles per day. We need to be landlocked. We don't want to buy a piece of dirt that has a bunch of empty ground. And we're okay with paying a premium. We'll pay a million, two million an acre if we need. And we need to achieve a buck 70 a foot or more in rental rate. And if we can hit those five things, usually it gets past our next filter, our next onion peel, our next layer. It takes 12 months usually to get a lot from purchase to construction site. And then it goes to our construction group. And then they'll take about 10 months to build it. And then it goes to extra space and they'll run it for us for 6%. We just have to, um, just get to be the owners. Interesting. So you're just, so you're owning not only the real estate, but also the business. Correct. They just charge 6% of revenue and then charge us for what their employees cost on site. And then pro rata share for the regional managers. Probably another good example of somebody focusing on what they're good at and saying, we're not going to bother with the real estate and the building and all that kind of stuff. We're just going to focus on running them. Yep. And that's what extra space storage does a really good job at in public. And they don't have the luxury to develop because they have shareholders or public. So they have to achieve quarterly earnings. I mean, we'll, we'll go lay out 300, $400 million and we really don't see any cash flow for three, four, four, three years after they're even open. So it, it takes a lot of time. Hmm. Interesting. And so what does the, you know, so, so you mentioned that you're, you're the next step, the next levels are to get to one a month. Uh, so are you at a point where you guys are so, uh, you know, you're, you're so well-funded or, you know, are, are you, are you at this point self-funded or are you always looking for more shareholders? Like, what does that look like in, in terms of anybody looking to do the same kind of thing is at what point do you stop going out and asking for money and just using your own? Or does that never stop? Because why wouldn't you use somebody else's money? Yeah. I, I wanted to keep effective control. So we have a super majority clause, 72%. So if I own 28% or 28.01%, I in effect have control because they would need to make me agree to change anything in our operating agreement, which I put together. So right now, excuse me. So right now um, I own about 40% still, uh, maybe 30 now, 35. We raised some last week, but we're kind of slowing down on raising money. We had a lot of money come in the last eight months. So I think we're going to take a chill pill for 12 months because we've got to get our, our development caught up. 
I mean, right now we're, we're funded enough for the next four years. We're funded. So we're always kind of looking, but right now we're not, I'd say in 23, 24, we'll start looking, but at, like, to answer your question, once we get to 12 a month, that's peak efficiency in my mind, because once you get to one a month, you can be your own garage door installer, not just dealer. You can be your own, you know, HVAC installer, not just hire it done. There's efficiencies that, but above 12, there's really no more, but below 12, you know, there's stuff you're missing. So once we get to 12, I think we're going to stay at 12 plateau and use our operating income and sales and refinance money above and beyond continuing that 12 per year and start rebuying shares out, do a tender offers and just start using our own money. So there is an end to raising money. And I, I think we're about there. What does, you know, so trying to spin this back to real estate and maybe somebody listening to this who says, you know, I aspire or I am acquiring property and I have a rental portfolio or I want to acquire uh, apartment buildings. You don't hear about this talked about too often. And I think it's a very small percentage of people that actually think to themselves, not only do I want to own the real estate and the doors, but I'm going to also own the companies that make it go. Uh, so yeah. would it be a management company, maybe a, uh, you know, maybe the, the handyman company, right? That's always, that's working in, on, on, on site at the properties. I don't even know where else you could go with it off the top of my head, but what advice would you give if I'm just asking you the question, like somebody who's in that wavelength and going down that path because they're very much residential real estate driven, what more could they do to essentially monopolize profits and revenue? Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all volume, right? And you need volume. And that's kind of where, like if I was building one a year, it'd be tough for me to even own my own construction company, right? Like there's things that I need. And that's why I went and raised money. And I created the supermajority so I wouldn't lose control. And then once I got there, then I could start buying investors out at huge returns. And, you know, in, in 20 years, I'm hoping this is 100% mine and my management team. And the biggest thing, just to give you numbers, just to break down this before we go into that too, is each facility after, so right now our vertical companies that, that build these facilities, you know, there's about 25 staff there. We'll probably go to about 50 once we're, once we're at 12 a year. Net, net of all their fees, net of all that cost, operating costs, we net about 1.2 million a facility in profits from our vertical integration. So in, in total, that, yep. So this facility in COVID era where things are inflated right now, they cost 13.2 each pre-COVID. Maybe if it comes back down, maybe they'll be back to 11 and a half ish, but we're building them for 1.2 million less net. So before the doors even open, we make 1.2 million. So if we're doing 12 a year, we're making 13 some million a year, just shy a little over in net profit before the doors open, just from vertical companies. That's crazy. So you going back to um, your, your question. I think the first thing is you need to focus on something, whatever it is, because having vertical integration, if you own a retail center there, you own an apartment there, you own a this there, that there. I mean, really what's, what are the efficiencies? I mean, you, you come up with a brilliant efficiency idea for an apartment. Well, cool. You you have one of those. I mean, it's just, it's not worth it. If you have everything that's the same, you have all your dominoes in a row and you have an idea, you hit a, one domino and they all fall. So it's just a lot more efficient. So that's the first step. And, and every real estate class is different, but there are mindless efficiencies, mindless amounts. Well, so going back to the question, you know, if, if you were in that mindset or you're coaching a real estate agent who said, yep. I have the volume or I'm on my way to the volume. What would be one of the first things that I should own that is one of those verticals? 
Yep. Well, if you're, if you're in a development company, I think getting in, if you're developing something, if, that, if that's what you're doing, if you're building just apartments, let's, let's just use that for example. If you're just building apartments, um, owning your own construction company, if you have the volume, boom, for sure. That's good money. Um, on what if you're that, buying existing? Buying existing, there's a little less vertical integration, but you can be your own management company. When you're buying existing, I guess there's flipping. So if you're coming in and doing flips, you could have your own fit up construction company, not ground up because fit up companies make like 20% margin. That's what they market up for, right? When you're developing something depends on the asset, but there'll be six percent fee. If you're doing just like a remodel, they charge like 20, 25. So if you're going to go in and buy a bunch of apartments and remodel, you should have your own, you know, fit up company and you could save 20% margin on every one or $2 million fit up expense you have per building. And then you could also bulk order all the materials. So if, you have, if you're doing 50 fit-ups a year, you can go straight to the manufacturing's, manufacturing companies and get a 10% discount on all the material. And you can have a, a purchasing agency that drop ships all the materials for then your fit-up company to come in and put into place. I mean, you'll save, I mean, just on a $2 million fit-up, I mean, you could be saving $500,000. Hmm. You know, that's just an idea. And again, yeah. there's so many scenarios, but that that's just going down that route. No, that's, that's good. It's just, that was a and random question. And being a realtor is good too. You know, being a realtor is good. So when you go buy these properties, you forfeit your fee. If you forfeit your fee and don't take a check, it lowers your basis, but you're not getting an income tax today. The cheapest money is government money. It's 0% interest, but you have to pay it eventually. But make sure you forfeit. Don't write yourself a check for being a realtor. Put it towards your equity. Just lowers say, your basis. Say, say that again. Say that again so realtors can understand what you just what you just described. Or maybe say it in a different way to give it some context yeah. to, to, to all of them. So if you're going to go, let's just say you're, you're, you're a young broker and you're like, I'm going to go buy an apartment complex. So you go in, you're representing yourself and you are going to buy this building and your fee is $50,000, even though you're buying it. Let's just say that's your fee. What, what you would do is go to the bank and when you say, hey, um, here's a $2 million building, easy numbers. Um, I know I owe you guys 400000 but my broker's fee is 50000 So I'm going to write you a $150,000 check. We're going to forfeit my $50,000 fee and we're good to go. If you do that, if you forfeit it, if you don't actually receive a $50,000 check, you don't get income tax that day, but your basis is only gonna be 150. So when you sell it, you gotta pay it. But the nice thing is you're using that 50,000 tax-free until you sell the property, but then you can 1031 and all that fun. Yeah, I was gonna say, there's other, there's other unique ways to avoid taxes. Eventually, I mean, eventually, eventually you pay the taxes, but you can push so like it. on our buildings at 1.2 million I mentioned, you know, we put down 5 million per project in cash. Well, 1.2 million of it's forfeited. So not only are we making 12, 13 million a year in our companies, we don't have any income tax on it, but our basis is very low on our properties. And then we rapid depreciate our garage doors and all of that. So we separate it out. We do an itemized depreciation schedule so that we can depreciate some of the assets in that building in seven years instead of the normal 29 and a half or whatever it is. Dude, you're freaking wise beyond your years, man. I mean, <laughs> how many people tell you that? I'm a nerdy, I'm a nerdy guy. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, I mean, yeah, obviously in, in the most complimentary way. I mean, that, that it's- No, it's, I know, it's very sweet. It, it's fascinating though, because, you know, again, most, let's just go back to 10th grade, 10th graders are worried about, you know, uh, what party they're going to go to, what girl they're going to try to hit on. I don't want to know what the hell they're thinking because I have uh, teenage girls, but you know, you know, I'm, you know, you get my point, right? And so yep. it, it's fascinating to me. And I think there's, there's, there's two things that I want to ask you here because 
you know, A, most real estate agents, no offense to everybody listening, because I'm one of them, we're older uh, by comparison. Uh, I guess I'm relatively young uh, comparatively. I think the average age of our industry is in the 50s. So many of those people actually have kids your age or, or maybe younger, maybe 15 to 25. So, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say very few of them have the same drive and the same acumen and the, the same discipline that Andrew Abernathy has. So as a parent, this is the first question, as a parent, yep. what advice are you giving to your kid uh, to to hopefully guide them down this path? And maybe I'm asking this selfishly, I don't know. But but what what advice would you give to 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 get your child out of the normal mindset and into a mindset that is more like yours? Right. That's a good question. I think, um, I think passion equals infinite success. And what I mean by that is there are six of us siblings. I am one, as I mentioned, and my parents were so phenomenal. Um, we were North Dakota farmhouse and we'd be sitting down for supper every night. And I remember my parents throwing out topics they would throw out random stuff and they would try to see which kid piqued their interest. Their eyes would sparkle, their voice would change. They'd take, they'd take a swing head and, and really get into that conversation. They'd throw out topics about medicine and farming and investing and teach everything. And that's how they found out what our passions were. They don't force passion, they find passion. And then once they found each of our- Was this passions, intentional? Was this intentional? Oh, yeah. now, I, now I know that, at the time I didn't know, but right, now yeah. I know. That's, well, that, that, that's a fascinating concept in and of itself. Go on, carry on, go on. Yeah, so then, then they would spend one-on-one -on -one time. So on the way to a ball game alone with my mom or dad, just me in the vehicle or whatever it may be, maybe in the living room, they were always around. So we, whenever we were one-on-one, -on -one, they would nurture it. They would, they would get a book or they, they, they'd educate themselves on what I was passionate about. And then they would nurture that and they would help me become better. Even though if they didn't know, like they, they don't know what I'm doing today, they're, they love it and they're proud of me, but they're just like, holy smokes, like it's on a whole nother level. But my sister's a doctor, my brother's a farmer, my sister's a teacher, One's, one helps out runs a church, I'm investing and we got one that just graduated high school. So we all follow different things, but we love what we do and the money's irrelevant. I could have been a violinist and wouldn't yes. have made as much money, but I would have been happy. Yeah, success is not defined by money in most eyes. I agree with you. Yeah, but I think it is funny. I think everybody needs to have a concept of money because the world revolves around it. So if you're a doctor, a farmer, a teacher, it doesn't matter. If you can live within your own means, my dad always told me, if you make, there's people that make 50 grand that are richer than people that make 20 million because the one at 50 lives within their means and the one at 20 million doesn't. Yeah. So income does not justify it or income does not tell me what your worth, net worth is or how you live. All it tells me is how much you have to work with, with um, you know, to live and and do it, do your life. Uh, so, I'm I'm I'm, I'm already de de deviating from my other question, but how did that family feel about you moving from you know the 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 homeland of North Dakota to to Arizona? Yeah, and that just happened two years ago. It's actually pretty funny you asked that. So we spend the summers back home by the farm on the lake because it's very nice in the summers there. And we spend nine months here, three there. And the kids go to school here. We have three boys under four. So I'm crazy for that too. Uh, and then actually two, two of my sisters followed uh, six months after us. Oh no. So my, the doctor sister and the, the church sister are actually here in Arizona with us. So we have half here and half there. And actually my parents love it. My, my family's been coming to Arizona in the winters between springs work and harvest for since the thirties and forties. So actually it's kind of a second home. What is, what did that describe that again? What did you say? Something in harvest? 
Oh, between springs work and harvest. Yeah. So after you take the crop off and then the snow flies, you've got between yeah, December, January, February, you got five months there where it's you can't do much. So Damn. they come here and get back for springs work. It's better it than out. being a teacher. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, because <laughs> teachers get the summers off, which you know, they they don't want to come to Arizona in the summer, which I don't blame. Right, them. right. But wow. we're there, so we can see them. That's fascinating. Uh, okay, so so I'm I'm gonna stay I'm gonna stay uh, down the 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 the, yes. uh, the side path here. Uh, what what is your sibling who just graduated high school? What's what's their passion? She's funny. She's actually a little bit of all all five of us. Like it's gonna be interesting. I mean, she wants to be a, you know, when you focus on things, you're not very smart at anything else. So what's what is it called when you work with eyes? Um, the she wants to be an eye like doctor. an optom optometrist. Yes, optometrist. Yeah, that's what she said this last time. But I can see her in business. I mean, she is witty, outgoing. It's she's got a little bit of all of us. That's a really good question. I'm excited to see. <laughs> I talk to her all the time about it. She used to sell bouncy balls in school. I'm like, oh, that's a really good idea. I should try yeah. that. Little entrepreneurial. Yeah. Because right? we both yeah. got in trouble a lot of school. I got kicked off the computers once for day trading, which I don't do it anymore. I was young, just testing <laughs> it out. Kicked off the computers for a whole year. Jeez, oh my God. Markets are closed when I'm out of school. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> that's that's hilarious that they would actually ban you from computers for day trading. That's hilarious. Yeah. I, I, I think I would stories. take a different approach on that if I was the if I was running that school and be like, uh, there could be a hell of a lot worse things this kid could be doing right now. I mean, come on. I got expelled once for, for something else and it was for a business. I was selling stuff and it was a captive audience. So the superintendent said, but my parents actually weren't mad at me. I was like, yeah. I wasn't anything bad. I, I made like $4,000 on selling t-shirts. That's where, that's where I, I would argue that sometimes our education systems are a little bit off. Um, you yeah. know, they don't have the right things necessarily in mind, but that's a whole different topic for yeah, another day. I, I agree though. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so back to the, the other, the second part of the question, one was for parents. The other is for, you know, the young, the young listener, uh, which sadly is probably not a ton of our listeners. Cause I just, I, I've learned that uh, the youth of America tend to, especially your generation, they think they already know it all. Um, yep. And I think most of them are spending more time trying to chase influence and chase YouTube stardom and TikTok stardom and things like that. Instant and um, yeah, they, they have yet to, they have yet to figure out that that's not going to work and they're going to be starting over in their thirties probably and, you know, figuring it out. So the ones that are listening, you know, what kind of advice would you give to somebody in keeping in mind, if they're listening to this, they're probably already a real estate agent, which in and of itself is impressive because again, not as many, you're either coming into this industry usually because your parent did not usually yeah. on your own accord. And so uh, what kind of advice would you give to a, to a young real estate agent? Yeah. Well, real estate agents have access to the best deals before anybody else. So that right there in itself is a great asset to have. I would just say in, in real estate agents or anybody younger trying to figure out what they want to do in life. Um, you know, I was from a small town where you couldn't, there, there was one group of friends and they were all interested in the same thing. There wasn't other groups that you could join if they weren't interested in your stuff. So I'm a little skewed, but everybody has a passion. Everybody don't lie to yourself. The sooner you quit lying to yourself in life, the better off you're going to be. Find your passion, try a bunch of things, fail a bunch. And then when you find your passion, stick to it and don't care what anybody thinks. The older you get, you care less. Just be a good person, stick to your moral compass, Find your passion as early as possible and quit lying to yourself and then focus. Sound that sounds very Gary V ish. Do you, you, yeah, you, did it? I, I have heard a couple of those things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. 
Uh, he Maybe says so. he says something very similar. It's and I'm a big fan and follow. I didn't swear, so, so we're good. <laughs> also true, also true. Yeah. But that might you know yeah, that's what the that's why he I has such like a him. young audience because he does swear a lot. It's it's uh, yeah, he's uh, good. Yeah, he's awesome. This is awesome, man. Is there anything else that uh, that that I didn't ask you that that maybe you want to bring up? Because this is like I said, and I think I mentioned this at the very beginning in the intro. I, I knew this was going to be a different type of episode. Uh, I, I I think it's fascinating. I think you know podcasting just in and of itself is is not always going to be educational. Sometimes it's just going to be interesting, and sometimes you're going to find a nugget when you didn't maybe think you would have. What you've done is insanely impressive. It sounds to me like you're nowhere near being done. That actually, that's a good question. What does what does Andrew Abernathy's future look like? Where do you see yourself when you are old at 35? Yeah, well, I would like to be building 24 a year. And, and inflation, I mean, I'd like, to, again, money to me is not everything. I actually, my teacher changed, my wife, my sister teaches, or teaches so she changes minds. That, that's what she gives back. My one, the doctor, she gives back medicine, church. They all have something to give back to the world. What I'm going to give back, I think, is finances. My gift is finance. So I want to be a billionaire by 50. And I would like to continue that wealth growth. But I would like to find out how I can impact the world. And we're actually, Abernathy Foundation, my wife and I started a few years ago, is really into human trafficking. So we've been, we've been donating to that now. But I'd like to get into that in a big way. So to give you my financial goals, again, it's not about the money. I would like to get to that billion net worth by 50. And then if you just use simple inflation, that's a I mean, long I can, time. That's a long, yeah. that's, that's double basically how old you are now. I know. And I think I can probably do it quicker, but you know, I'd like to hit 50 billion before I pass, but again, inflation, that's about 8 billion today. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I like to beat goals. So <laughs> you're okay. So, so, okay. I, I lied. One more question. Uh, what do you think about cryptocurrency and NFTs since you are a young uh, Warren Buffett protege. I'm not in them. I don't, I'm not going to, I don't know. I'm not in them. I don't understand them again. When you focus like, you know, God sprinkled talents on me, I guess self-storage and, and focus was one. I'm, I can't spell. I, I can't do a lot of things. If it's not self-storage, I'm pretty much useless. But so you, but, but you it. made your money investing and you call yeah, it, you call it dumb luck, but Yes, to a degree, there's a lot of luck in investing, but you still had to know which ones to buy that had the best potential upside, which you still can't control. But come on, you clearly yeah, did. Okay, your so it's a currency. It's a currency, and I, I guess I personally, I, I understand that there's there's a limited supply of it, and I get all that supply and demand. But I always look at currency as a way to eliminate the time it takes to barter two goods. That's why currency was created way back in the day. So someday I might be buying and selling storage facilities in Bitcoin as a currency. I just fail to figure out how to mathematically find a, a, um, a strategic value in it. I just, I don't, I can't see value in a currency. I see it more as a time-saving device, but I think I'll be using it someday. If that's, instead of selling stuff in US dollars, I might be selling in Bitcoin. But again, currency for me is just to eliminate the bartering time between two asset classes. Intrinsic value, it's above my head when it comes to that. But I, I get it, it's just above my head. I think the blockchain, that's amazing. I mean, title companies and all that, I think that's going to really kind of expedite things tremendously. So I see a lot of risk being lowered on my end when it comes to the time and cost to originate fees and mortgages and closing. I, I think I'm excited to use it. I really am. I just, it's really above my head. <laughs> listen, listen, folks, to what this guy just said. The, this, this Andrew, I mean, if you stuck with us this long, there, there was some value in the way you just answered that question. And the, the value oh, to yeah. me is, 
this dude's smarter than most of us. And you, you hear, you, you can shake your head if you're not watching. He's shaking his head and he's laughing and ha ha, you're so cute, Jeff. It. But I know damn well deep down, you're like, you're damn right, I'm smart and I'm rich. And I'm richer than almost everybody my age that wasn't born with it. That's a fact. And, and so listen to what he just said. Uh, for all of you out there, and I'm one of them, I dabble in that stuff. It's just more of a game and play money for me. But for a lot of us, especially your generation, we've got some loan officers doing this. You're chasing you're chasing this dream of getting wealthy in cryptocurrency and, and NFTs and all this stuff. And I'm sure there's going to be some that do just like Michael Jordan became rich playing basketball. But the odds of you being the Michael Jordan or whoever is going to be the Michael Jordan of NFTs or crypto is very, very slim. So what Andrew just told you is he's like, screw all that nonsense. I'm going to focus on what I'm good at and I'm going to make a billion doing what I'm good at. And that's how I'm going to succeed. That's really valuable advice, dude. Thank you so much for that. You didn't mean well, to. I appreciate that. Because I think I think a big thing with nowadays is, you know, people's intention spans have shortened. Books are shortening. I mean, you go on Facebook and the video sucks in 10 seconds, you pass. So investing in wealth and created in the day. I know it sounds cliche, but it's legit. This takes time. I mean, I'm a decade in, which I know is not the, actually more than a decade, 13 years in, which is nothing I know. But I've got goals out to 85. This isn't a come in, come out kind of game. You kind of got to just dive in and put your blinders on and you got to focus on something longer than 10 seconds. And that's going to be a challenge for my generation, but I guess it's less competition. So I'm all right. I, I would agree <laughs> with that statement. And the last thing I will say is if you've got goals out to 85, that means you're probably going to invest a lot of time and, and energy and money into your health. Correct. I, I, uh, you know, I have a good time. I'm fun, but uh, I try to get to the gym and my wife's, my wife, she's, she's really good at working out and eating right. So I got a, I'm pretty lucky to have her in my life. She keeps me pretty healthy. <laughs> yep. Yep. Same, same. I love it, dude. This has been great, man. I appreciate you being on today. Is there, is there any uh, parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? No, just, just focus and put the blinders on and, and be you, be the best you you can be. Love it, man. I appreciate you sharing with us. If uh, anybody wants to get in touch with you, learn more about you, uh, follow your journey, what's the best way that they can do that? Yeah. So uh, andrewabernathy.com and abernathyholding.com. That's my personal and company page. Everything's on there and I am an open book. So call or make email anytime. I was going to say, you know what? I mean, they're talking to a guy who called a bunch of rich people uh, to, to pick their brains. You know what? For some of you young people out there that could use his advice, take, take him up on his own advice. See what happens. Yep. I love answering the phone. I love it. <laughs> an old soul, man. An old soul. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Andrew, thank you so much for being a guest, man. I look forward to uh, hopefully staying in touch. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Chime. Chime offers an award-winning sales acceleration platform built for the real estate industry. Powered by artificial intelligence, Chime delivers the data insights agents and teams need to make the most out of the leads they already have and to get to a close faster. Through an expanding partner network, Chime's easy-to-use conversion platform also delivers quality sales-ready leads from the get-go. It eliminates time-consuming manual tasks and helps agents focus on what matters most, building their network, servicing clients, and growing the bottom line. To learn more about how Chime can help you, visit www.chime.me or call 833-682-4463. Agents Podcasts.